You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. One of the uh, delicious ironies of my life today is that my uh, sermon title is Perception Transformed, A Story of Awareness, in that I thought it was daylight savings time going off today. So I walked into the 8.30 service at about 8.40. Um, I was remarkably uh, uh, unaffected by the whole thing. I can't imagine the adrenaline that was pumping around here, though. So I'm grateful to my colleagues uh, for enduring that adrenaline uh, and being the cause of it. But I am talking about perception today and awareness. (laughs) And doing so in the context of this series that we have been preaching on the parables in in Luke's gospel. They are stories with literary twists that open up portals of understanding for us. Jesus tells a story and unhinges us a bit through that story and opens our eyes to truth that we may not have seen had we not been participants in hearing that story. And in many ways, all of these parables are parables that could be subject to the same sermon title that I have today. They are stories about perception and awareness and and inviting us to the bigger perception of, of what the kingdom of God is all about and how we always conceive of it as something smaller than it actually is. And so today we look at a story in in Luke 16 of of Lazarus the beggar and and the rich man and and their relationship. And and Jesus tells this parable in the context of an ongoing discussion that he's having with the Pharisees. Back in chapter 15, the Pharisees have questioned his choice to spend time with tax collectors and and sinners. And and so he tells the story of of lostness, three stories of lostness, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, which is the parable of the prodigal son that George worked through uh, with us last week. And then in chapter 16, what happens is is that he begins to address the Pharisees' perceptions about money and and material wealth. Uh, He begins with a story about an unrighteous steward, and at the end of that story, talks about how you cannot serve both uh, mammon or wealth and, and God. And, and the Pharisees begin to mock him for that. And the result of that mockery is this story that uh, we will read today in just a second here, that where Jesus begins to question that, that one-to-one correspondence or that cause-effect correspondence that the Pharisees believe in, that material wealth is a sign of God's blessing. So let's look at Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, as I read. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores and who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Yet even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. 
In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. And the rich man said, Then, Father, I beg you, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. But Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Just pray with me, please. Very often, our God, having eyes we do not see and having ears we do not hear, So by your Holy Spirit, expand our awareness, open our eyes and ears, teach us, and so equip us with the perspective we need to see you at work and the power we need to join you in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I read this parable, one of the first things that came to mind for me is a a genre of joke that uh, is told often about uh, being greeted by St. Peter at Heaven's Gate. And, you know, there's a whole series of these kinds of jokes and the conversations that happen between the people going to heaven and, and their conversations with St. Peter. And I, I thought of, of one in particular uh, this morning that, that's also about perception in some ways. And it seems that um, uh, the Pope died and, and went to heaven. And uh, upon going to heaven, he was escorted to these uh, comfortable but, but rather austere uh, apartments in uh, in what would be like what an abbot would have in a Benedictine monastery, and and he was quite comfortable, and the food was good, and and uh, and you know was kind of dealing with that, a little bit put off by the fact that the Vatican Palace was nicer than these uh, than these uh, rooms, but. Uh, a few days later, he looked out his window and he saw this mansion across the street and he saw this great retinue of people that were sort of guiding this celebrated person in, into this mansion. And uh, he comes to find out that, um, that the, uh, a lawyer had come to be his neighbor across the street. Well, the Pope, you know, was trying to be humble in all of this and, and yet finally one day at the retired Pope's Club in heaven... Uh, he and Peter were having uh, the opportunity to talk, and he said, you know, Peter, I realize this sounds pretty self-absorbed, but, you know, uh, it just doesn't seem quite right that I'm a pope and, and I'm in these, you know, comfortable but, but rather austere rooms that, that you've given me in this uh, abbey, uh, and yet across the street there is this 
lawyer who was ushered in in grand pomp and, and circumstance and, and really has something that's even nicer than the palace at the Vatican. I, I don't understand that. And Peter uh, put down his drink and, and uh, basically uh, looked over at the, at the Pope and said, well, that's easily explainable. He said, you know, we look around. We've got lots of popes up here, but this is the first lawyer we've ever had. <laughs> So why do I tell that story? <laughs> I don't does just tell it for a cheap laugh at the expense of what is probably one quarter of our congregation. <laughs> I tell this story for, for two reasons that are far more academic than that. The first is, is that in the same way that we don't arrange our theology of heaven and the afterlife from a joke like this, Good news to the lawyers. Uh, we don't arrange our theology of heaven and the afterlife from a joke like this. Neither should we take Jesus' story and arrange our theology of heaven and the afterlife after it either. The point of his story is to tell us something that opens up our eyes to a perspective that we need to have in life. The other thing that this joke does is it turns on its head the matter of what we perceive ought to be the case, especially in the case of the, the fictional pope in that story. He sees one thing that ought to have happened, and yet as he talks about that and articulates it, he understands that something else very different than his expectations have taken, has taken place. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make through this parable with the Pharisees whom he is addressing. He's challenging the Pharisees' assumptions about and perceptions about um, reality and, and inviting them to, to look at the reality of the kingdom of God differently than their limited perception was, was doing for them. And he's really dealing with two subjects when he does this. He deals, first of all, with money and the Pharisees' perception of, of wealth and the relationship of wealth and blessing. And then secondly, with the, the theme of identity and, and who are the children of Abraham and, and, and how is one on the, the inside or, or not on the inside. So in order to see him dealing with this, this theme of money, we have to back up to earlier in chapter 16. As I said, Jesus tells this parable of the unrighteous steward and then makes the correlation that you cannot serve both, both mammon and God. You cannot serve both wealth and the Lord, and, and then the Pharisees begin to laugh at him. They mock him with this. They mock him because they make that correlation quite strongly, and he's introducing to them an idea that they don't agree with. So in the response to their mockery, he tells this story. He tells another story and concludes that there's a reality that's bigger than they know. Right at the beginning, a couple of verses before this story is told, Luke informs us that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And so Jesus is obviously kind of pulling their chain a bit at this point and raising their awareness in a way that might be a bit uncomfortable to them and getting them to question that truth that they believe in, that material blessing is somehow uh, corresponding to or the, the effect uh, of being righteous. 
And so Jesus tells this story about a great reversal. And he illustrates a very massive perspective shift that takes place in the, in the context of this story. He tells first of this rich man who leads a lavish life, who is dressed in purple and who feasts sumptuously every day. In other words, the food on his table is so magnificent that he's become unaware of just how wealthy he is. That's the norm. And then place next to him this poor man named Lazarus who is dumped at the rich man's gate, the gate of his compound, his house, every day in the hopes of being satisfied with this, the scraps from the rich man's table. And yet the irony is, is that he himself, Lazarus, becomes a scrap because he is being licked daily. The sores on his body are being licked daily by the, by the street dogs that hang around the gate as well. And then there is the description of the death of both of these men and the twist that takes place in the story comes at this point because the rich man, as, as Jesus tells the story, is buried and goes to Hades. The, the poor man um, is carried away by the angels to the bosom of Abraham, is what the Greek text says. What does that mean? Uh, the bosom of Abraham is, is, you picture someone sitting on Abraham's lap as a child and you have the image that, that's being uh, that's being used here by Jesus. And so there is this great reversal of the matters of isolation and inclusion. This series of reversals where the one who had lived a blessed life, who had all of the accoutrements of money and, and wealth, now lives the cursed life. And the one who was cursed now lives the blessed life. There's this massive perspective shift that takes place on the part of the characters. For what Abraham, or rather, what the rich man could not see while he was alive, he begins to see after he dies. And what Lazarus could see while he was alive, he is no longer aware of following his death. The rich man can see Lazarus, but Lazarus can't see the rich man in Hades. In essence, the one who needed mercy receives it, and the one who showed no mercy knows now what it means to be without it. The outsider is in. The insider is out. And Jesus' tacit point in all of this to his hearers is, is anything making you uncomfortable here? (laughs) Is this challenging your assumptions about the way things are? Religion loves the argument about the question of who is inside and who is outside. We know in at least 2,000 years of church history and in history that long predates that, that most of our arguments have to do with who's in and who's out and what needs to happen in order to make that so. But Jesus here is challenging some of the assumptions about this very theme in his, in his day, about who are the children of Abraham. And this challenge really occurs all the way through Luke's gospel because Luke is broadening our awareness of, of that reality of, of who is in and, and who is out. And there's an invitation throughout Luke's gospel to think bigger about this question, to shake people out of the comforts of their religious assumptions and to see that the kingdom of God is bigger than, than their parochial conception of it. 
In chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel, he has a, a, a sermon by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says it the most clearly of anyone. He says, don't say to me you are children of Abraham, for I tell you that God can raise children of Abraham out up, up out of these rocks if he wants to. Or later on in chapter 19, when Jesus, Jesus goes in to meet with Zacchaeus in his house and endures the grumbling of the Pharisees around him, Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, He too, this tax collector, this cursed one, this one who you claim to be an outsider, is actually a child of Abraham. And then in this story, we have the image of the cursed beggar who ends up on Abraham's lap as a child. And it's the cursed beggar who has a name, Lazarus. A Greek translation of the Hebrew named Eliezer, which means God helps. You know, he's the only character in any of Luke's parables, or the parables of Jesus in Luke's gospel, that has a name. So it's Lazarus who ultimately has the identity and is the insider in this story. And so what Jesus is saying over and over in all of these images and almost hitting his hearers over the head with the truth is that there is much more happening in God's kingdom than what you are seeing. You are blinded by your restricted perspectives and your stunted imaginations. A few weeks ago, I, I read a story that, that came in sort of virally over email, you know, and sometimes those are worth reading. Um, and... Uh, the uh, the story was about a, a little experiment that Joshua Bell, who is kind of a rock star in the violin world, if you don't know about classical violinists, uh, Joshua Bell is kind of right up there on top, and uh, everybody wants to pay lots of money to hear him play these days. But Joshua Bell and the Washington Post got together, and he kind of disguised himself a little bit and uh, went into one of the metro stations with a, a good resonance and acoustic and played Bach for 45 minutes on, on a, you know, a violin that is worth more than um, a lot of things. And, um, <laughs> and he, he played for 45 minutes. And, and what the report was is that during those 45 minutes, most people, about 2,000, passed by. Most people just walked by. Occasionally, children would stop and listen. But only six people stopped to really listen. And at the end of those 45 minutes, he had 32 bucks in his hat. Pretty good for a busker, actually. But uh, he usually pulls down about 100 bucks a ticket uh, for the best seats. So what was going on there? Some of the most beautiful music played on a, an incredible instrument by one of the greatest virtuosos that's currently living and most people didn't hear the beauty of it. Why? Because of where it was coming from. Something that good and that beautiful couldn't possibly be played in a metro station, could it? But it was. And most of the people that passed by that day missed it. There was a chasm between perception and reality based on very limited and thus very limiting assumptions. And so they missed it. And that's the way the text depicts the same reality in this story, as a, as a great chasm. What the rich man is told is that there's a gap too big, and it, it can't be crossed following his death. 
He's essentially told that the gap that he chose, that he had the power to choose to cross in life, he can no longer cross in death. And he chose not to cross this gap in life because the beggar he had to step over every day or step around at the gate of his compound went completely unnoticed by him. But in death, in humility, he sees. His eyes are opened, and in the face of his own need for mercy, he sees his failure to have seen Lazarus' need for mercy and give it to him in life. And that's the tragedy of the story. And so the point that I take from this story is Jesus' constant invitation throughout it to to open ourselves to these invitations to humility. Because you see, what happens is that humility is something that fosters mercy. An awareness of my vulnerability, realizing I don't have it all together, understanding the limits of my own power makes space in me for something bigger than my assumptions about myself and my world. Seeing my need for kindness fosters a willingness to grant that kindness, that mercy, to others. The kingdom of God is always bigger than my perception of it. And that is the daily invitation that Jesus gives us to humility. And recognizing this opens the way to be a participant in that kingdom and to be givers of the mercy that we receive. Today is Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday is always the Sunday before All Saints Day because it was on All Saints Day in 1517 that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg where he was decrying the indulgences that Rome was selling to fund their buildings. A way of buying a sort of of get-out-of-purgatory-free card that everyone could have that would go to building the great palaces of Rome. Luther hated that. And that's why he tacked those 95 theses, decrying it on the door of the the church in Wittenberg. But about six years before, in a visit to Rome, he went to Rome on business for his monastic order and went there also for a pilgrimage. It was his first visit to Rome. He was excited about going, looking forward to what God would do in and through him there. And so he visited all sorts of shrines, and, and he saw it as a pilgrimage. And at one point, he, he apparently was uh, at the, the, uh, the Sancto Scala, um, which are the holy steps, and these sacred steps that, that by tradition were the steps of the, the home, leading to the home that was once Pontius Pilate's, and, and that it was viewed that if you went to the shrine and climbed these steps on your knees, that you could... You could literally do a penance that would buy your or someone else's way out of purgatory. And so Luther began the ascent up these steps. And different biographers tell it differently. But one biographer tells the story that about halfway up the steps, he heard in his mind the, the, the text from Romans 1, the just shall live by faith, that he stood up at that point and walked down the steps, realizing more than anything else at that point how Arrogant it was to assume that he could do something to influence the mercy of God. 
and instead understood that God gave mercy and granted it irrespective of his merit. In that act, Luther essentially said, it's got to be bigger than what I think. It's got to be bigger than what we can control. It's got to be bigger than, than this, this mere act of my own. God's got to be bigger than that because mercy is granted and not earned. Every single day, God gives us the opportunity to receive a, an invitation to humility. And you know, there's a certain comfort in blinding our eyes or dulling our hearing to those invitations. Because there's a certain comfort in safely holding on to our limited and limiting perceptions about who God is and what God does because we can keep God in a particular box and we don't have to be threatened or challenged by the fact that he's much bigger than anything we could ever conceive. But nevertheless... The Holy Spirit is at work among us and in the business of blowing apart those boxes that we create and inviting us to the broad and open space of the awareness that God's grace is unlimited and much bigger than we could ever conceive. And so the questions we need to ask ourselves quite clearly every day are, where are the invitations to humility that might lead me to be a participant in God's mercy? Where are the invitations to see the truth that there is more than meets the eye? Where are the invitations to receive and to give mercy? Where are the invitations to stop trying to control God and to instead participate in what God is doing? What Paul says at the end of Ephesians 3 is the best way to end. Now unto him who by the power at work within us, is able to do abundantly far more than we can ask or even imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, now and forever. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? We pray for awareness, Lord, for the opportunity to see what we have not seen, to get just a hint of the glory, the weightiness of your work among us and in us. Show us what we have not seen and so lead us into a place where we receive your invitation to humility and so become participants in your mercy. Lead us and guide us into an awareness of our abundance. And as we give our gifts of tithes and offerings to you, help us to see that they are but a trifle when compared to the wealth of your kingdom. In all of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.